We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Not because it is easy, but because it is hard. A badly humiliated nation would show the world, but mostly we'd show ourselves the kind of country we were by doing the hardest thing ever attempted. You know, Kennedy got it all in those first seven words. We choose to go to the moon. That was the hard part, just deciding that we were going to go. Everything else was a mere engineering problem. Now, in part one of what we saw, we'll start with the real-time catastrophe that was unwinding behind the images of a model lem landing on a plaster moon. And then, to really understand why we made this commitment, we'll go back to before the beginning of the space race, into the world of cap guns and cowboys and Indians, of fallout shelters and H-bombs, and of the steady beeping from a thousand-pound Soviet cylinder as a dead dog flew over our country 16 times a day. Back on the go for landing. Okay, we got good lock on. Uh, altitude lights out. LH is minus 2,900. Roger, we copy. Cut the earth right out our front window. Houston, you're looking at our Delta H. Uh, that's affirmative. Program alarm. Looking good to us, over. 1202. Okay, let's hold it right there. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin are almost exactly halfway from the start of PDI, that's the Powered Descent Initiation, and touchdown on the lunar surface. They're standing side by side in an ungainly, asymmetrical, shockingly delicate vehicle named Eagle. They have about five minutes left until touchdown. They have simulated this scenario hundreds of times before. The entire point of simulation is to make the simulator tougher than reality. Any number of glitches, failures, spikes, cutouts, runaway thrusters, ice in a fuel line, loss of communications, loss of radar, loss of the flight computer, all of it. Everything that could possibly go wrong on this final five minutes of the last decade of effort, death, triumph, humiliation, and sacrifice had been dished out to Armstrong and Aldrin in various combinations and at the worst possible moments. So when Neil Armstrong mentions he's got a 1202 error on the flight computer, sounds like just another routine hiccup. But here's the thing. Neither Neil Armstrong, nor Buzz Aldrin, nor any of the hundreds of men monitoring this final phase of this ultimate mission, none of them, have any idea what a 1202 error is. They've never seen it before. The ground controllers have never seen it before, and it's never been simulated. There's never been a procedure written to deal with it. All they know is that halfway down to the surface of the moon, with 600 million people back on Earth listening live to their every word, they suddenly do not have altitude or range data from the flight computer. Neil and Buzz have just finished rolling their lunar module, the Eagle, from a windows down to a windows up position. Now, just a few seconds before the computer failure, they felt as though they were looking up at the moon as it scrolled gracefully past the two large triangular windows on the LEM. But once completing that scheduled roll maneuver, 
they not only cannot measure the distance to the surface, they can't even see it. They are as high above the moon as your typical commercial jet flight is above Earth. Let's say 30 Empire State Buildings stacked one on top of the other. And they have lost the only piece of flight hardware that had not been rigorously flight tested on a previous mission, their flight computer and their ground surface radar. Now, hadn't been flight tested because no one had ever had to use it before. At 33,500 feet, they are 15,000 feet lower than the point at which the dress rehearsal flight, Apollo 10, had aborted to orbit as planned. So let's just back up a second and listen to that again. Program alarm. Looking good to us, over. 1202. 1202. Put yourself in Armstrong or Aldrin's place. You're both standing in a ship about the size of a bedroom closet, not a walk-in closet, just a decent-sized closet. A few seconds ago, you were looking at the moon getting closer and closer, and it was not only getting closer, it was getting closer faster. And of course, it's not just the two of you in that fragile metallic insect that's hurtling towards the surface of the moon. 600 million people, every single person on Earth with access to a television set, are with you as well. 375,000 engineers, technicians, computer specialists, flight surgeons, lunch ladies, and bathroom scrubbers are up in the eagle with you as well, an entire army of people who've given everything they've had over the last 10 years to get to these next five minutes. Five dead astronauts, close friends, every one of them, are in that lunar module, and so is a young president who dared them to do it, shot through the head five years, seven months, and 29 days earlier. If they can't resolve this 1202 error and quickly, It could be the end of the mission, the end of the promise, and perhaps the end of their lives. So, listen to the tone. Program alarm. Looking good to us, over. 1202. 12.02. Since every single ounce that went down to the moon's surface had to slow down, stop, come back, and then take off again, carrying the weight of the computer that they wanted was just out of the question. Now, their solution was an elegant one. Take a much simpler and lighter machine and then divide all of the data it needed to process into groups based on priority. The computer would then do whatever calculation it could in a certain allotted time and then move down the stack to work on the next set of instructions for several hundredths of a second and then proceed to the third set and so on. Now, this way, it could do the work of the much heavier machine that could handle all of these computations simultaneously. Now, Garmin had a theory. At certain times during the descent, a great deal of data, top priority data, was coming rapidly from the radar altimeter, not to mention all of the other calculations the computer had to perform. A 1202 error was a stack overflow. When the workload became too high to perform in the allocated time, the computer would skip to the next task and it would overload again. Now, there was a simple solution to this, and that is reboot the computer. And so that's what the machine was designed to do. Restart every single time it got an overflow error. Now, fortunately for Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, this only took about a second. That's not only how simple the machine was, it's also a measure of how simple the math was. Now, hang on for another second or two, and you will hear Neil Armstrong, who took manual control of Gemini 8 as it was tearing itself to pieces in Earth orbit. Neil Armstrong 
who ejected from the lunar landing simulator a tenth of a second before it was too late, who parachuted down through the fireball, and who was sitting at his desk calmly filling out the paperwork as his colleagues arrived for work that morning. Listen carefully, and you will hear Neil Armstrong coming as close to panic as he ever did in his entire life. Give us a reading on the 1202 program alarm. Roger, we got you. We're going at alarm. So, the descent continued, and I watched it happen. Me and the rest of the human race back on July 20th, 1969, and this is what we saw. We're go, same type, we're go. 2,000 feet, 2,000 feet, into the ag, 47 degrees. Roger. 47 degrees. So here's the first thing I remember about watching man set foot upon the moon half a century ago. I was 10 years old and I was watching the television set and there was also, of course, the extra excitement that you get when you're 10 years old and it's 11 o'clock at night and there are adults with cocktails in the room. I remember looking at this fuzzy, fuzzy image on this black and white TV and below it was the caption, big clear letters, live from the moon. Now, I could tell that something was moving, but for the life of me, I just had no idea what I was looking at, none. My dad had to actually get up, walk over to the TV set, and kind of with his finger, he sort of drew the outline of here's Neil Armstrong's helmet, and here's his backpack, and you can see his legs moving as he slowly gets lower and lower and lower down the ladder. Then all of a sudden, like that, I got it. I could suddenly make sense out of this Rorschach test of black and white squiggles. Once you've seen an astronaut descending a ladder to the surface of the moon, you can't really unsee it. We were solidly middle class growing up, but my dad was a hotel manager, and that made him friends with other hotel managers, which is why I got to watch the moon landing from the penthouse floor of the Plaza Hotel in New York City, which was the spindle of the world back then. Really, it really was. I remember also that it was very warm in the room that night, very warm. It was warm because the windows were open. The windows were open so that we could hear the massive crowd of people. It was tens and tens of thousands of them gathered around these giant projection screens set up in Central Park just below us there. Now, they'd been making party noises for hours. I didn't realize it at the time, me being up there on the moon and all. But while Neil was carefully making his way down the ladder, there were tens of thousands of people in Central Park right out the window, and they were not making so much as a peep. It had been about, what, um, six hours maybe, I guess, since the actual landing, and they weren't supposed to do the moonwalk for another six hours. They had actually planned that Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin would, you know, land on the frickin' moon, and then the first thing they'd do is, you know, have a nice nap for maybe six or seven hours, which to me was about as impossible as if I'd woken up on Christmas morning, opened the coolest presents in the world, and then my parents told me that I had to go back to bed for another six hours so that I could be all nice and rested when I wanted to play with them. At the request of Neil and Buzz, they moved the moonwalk up earlier from 12 hours after landing to about 6, which for us in Eastern time meant it would be at about 10.30 p.m. Those six hours between the landing and the ladder felt longer than my entire life has been lived up to that point. Beautiful view. You got something? Magnificent flight out here. And this is what everybody misses when they think back on the moon landing, if they were old enough to see it at all. Everybody remembers the blurry white shape as Armstrong stepped onto the moon. 
wasn't just the emotional climax of Apollo 11. It was the climax of everything the entire country had been obsessed about since October 4th, 1957, when we woke up to discover that there was a Soviet satellite overflying our nice suburban neighborhoods. Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. Here, an artist's conception of how the feat was accomplished. A three-stage rocket. Number one, the booster in the class of an intercontinental missile. Its weight estimated at 50 tons. The smaller second stage took over at 5,000 miles an hour and carried on to the highest point reached. 500 miles up, the artificial moon is boosted to a speed counterbalancing the pull of gravity and released. And the Soviets, as everybody in America realized, almost every moment of our lives had hydrogen bombs. had landed at 4.17 p.m. Eastern Time on July 20th, 1969. There was no live video of the landing itself. Everybody forgets that. No, we were all staring at that big countdown clock with those you know, big blocky 1960s Chiron effect digits. And during the entire descent, during the late afternoon Eastern Time, all we got to watch was kind of a simple animation of the lunar module and it's flying sideways and there's a two-second loop of flames coming reassuringly out of the descent engine and the clock is counting down and we and the rest of planet Earth, well, we're all just watching this cartoon together. Okay, I'm still on flu, uh, so we may tend to lose as we gradually pitch over. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsor. Remember when you could just go to the doctor and have him look at you and you'd write him a check and that would be pretty much the end of it? No, me neither. Nowadays, the insurance laws are something like what are they, seven or eight feet tall in a stack? Just trying to find an insurance policy, life insurance policy, any kind of policy, it's just plain nuts. The paperwork is overwhelming and nobody really knows what any of it says anyway. That's why we use Policy Genius because it's the easiest way to shop for any kind of insurance online. It takes about two minutes and once you apply, our Policy Genius team's gonna handle all of the paperwork and all of the red tape. That's the stuff that really makes my life just one of fall in and collapse. It's financial protection and peace of mind, and Policy Genius doesn't just make life insurance easily. They can also find you home insurance or auto insurance, disability insurance, all of those. So look, if you need life insurance, but you don't want to deal with that stack of papers that's pretty quickly going to be reaching to the moon, you can head to policygenius.com. Compare all of the top insurers, find the one that's best for you. Policy Genius, delegate what you hate, especially if you hate getting life insurance. We weren't getting video, but we could hear the radio transmissions between Eagle and Houston. Let me try auto again now, see what happens. Roger. And after a few minutes, the cartoon lunar module was no longer flying sideways. Now we saw a different cartoon, kind of a cell animation. We're looking down and we can see the foot pads out in front of us and the craters are kind of slowly scrolling past. And then the next shot is, okay, we got a painting of the moon here and off in the distance, there's a tiny little fuzzy white speck. It's a little animated lunar module and it's getting lower and lower and we're watching and the countdown clock goes to zero and the second it goes to zero ta-da there it is in all its glory a plastic lunar module on a plaster moon with big rocks in the foreground to know that we're actually down on the surface despite what we were seeing in the animation the actual lem wasn't on the moon yet we didn't know that cbs news didn't know that 
The guys at Mission Control knew from the telemetry that they hadn't landed yet, but even they didn't really know why. So for a little over 30 seconds on July 20th, 1969, there were only two people who knew exactly why the moon landing hadn't happened yet. And they didn't really have the time to let the rest of us in on it because Armstrong and Aldrin had less than 30 seconds in which to save the mission and almost certainly their lives. 100 feet down to 19. 540 feet down to 30, down to 15. Now, most people know what the lunar module looks like. Some of you may have even seen a full-size mock-up or perhaps even actual lunar module number two, which is at the National Air and Space Museum. It never flew because lunar module number one on the unmanned Apollo 5 mission performed so well in Earth orbit that they decided second unmanned test was unnecessary. But here's what most people don't realize about the lunar module, like lunar module two at the Smithsonian. What you're seeing there has been modified for display. And the reason that it's been modified is that the lunar module had to be so light and therefore so fragile that if you had lowered the actual eagle from Apollo 11, the lunar module, if you lowered it slowly by a crane onto the floor of the museum, the second that cable went slack, the legs would snap and the vehicle would fall over. The lunar module is not strong enough to support its own weight here on Earth. There are no shock absorbers on the limb. If they ran out of fuel any higher than, say, I don't know, LeBron James, then the legs would collapse and Armstrong and Aldrin are not coming back. The floor of the limb that the astronauts were standing on was about a two-inch thick honeycomb composite, but the sides, the actual hull that you can see in all of the pictures on the surface, those sides are about as thick as a piece of heavy-duty aluminum foil. The eagle was essentially a silver and gold soap bubble, just barely able to hold five PSI of pure oxygen in the one-sixth gravity of the moon. 300 feet down, three and a half, 47 forward. We didn't get an update from Armstrong because he was manually flying this soap bubble far beyond his intended landing site, trying to find a place to set her down. Five and forward, coming down nicely, 200 feet, four and a half down, five and a half down. While 600 million people were watching a cartoon, Neil Armstrong found himself 60 stories in the air. That's three quarters of the way up to the observation deck on the Empire State Building. He's in this tiny little soap bubble of a vehicle and he is sitting straight down into a huge field of boulders the size of cars and small houses. Now, even if they were to survive the landing, it looked very likely that the lunar module will land at such a steep angle that the thrusters on the ascent stage wouldn't have the juice to get the vehicle vertical for takeoff. 100 feet, three and a half down, nine forward. Five percent. Hey, 75 feet. That's looking good, down a half. As a matter of fact, just two years later, the probes on the footpad of Apollo 15's Falcon Lander would just kind of brush against the rim of a small crater, so Commander Dave Scott killed the engine about two feet above the surface. The Falcon slammed down hard enough for lunar module pilot Jim Irwin to shout, BAM! from the impact. Eight feet minus one. Contact. BAM! They landed on the lip of the crater. When they finally settled down, they realized that the Falcon was resting at an 11-degree angle. The safe limit for getting back into space and coming home was 12 degrees. Nine forward. Good. And 
Now, early in the descent, with the eagle aligned in such a way so that the moon appeared to be kind of scrolling majestically above the windows, Armstrong was able to identify a small ridge called Boot Hill. He'd been practicing this for years. When the center of Boot Hill passed a calibration mark on the window, Armstrong made note of the time. Our position check down here to us to be a little long. Roger, copy. And we'll be right back after a message from our sponsors. Don't you just hate these little, like, physical chores that you have to do? Little trip, you have to get in your car, drive someplace, and and handle something that you should just be able to do on your computer? It's like, you know, it's like oral surgery. They don't give you any anesthesia. Now, I'm not saying it's living in Stalagrad or anything, but frankly, I like to save a lot of time. So what I do is I use Stamps.com. Stamps.com basically takes the entire U.S. post office and puts it right there in your computer. If you have a few letters to send, they print out the labels for that. If you got a little mom and pop operation, certainly can handle that. As a matter of fact, even if you've got a warehouse and you're cranking out hundreds of thousands of orders a day, you can do it with Stamps.com. Stamps.com will give you a five cent off of every first class stamp and up to 40% off of priority mail during this special offer. It's used by over 700,000 small businesses right now at this moment. But I got to tell you, of all the stuff that this includes, you also get not only a four week free trial, but you also get this cool little digital scale comes with no long-term commitment. You put the letter on the scale, scale talks to the computer, computer prints the label, you slap it on there and you're on your way. So just go to stamps.com, click on the microphone up at the top of the homepage and type in the word Apollo. That's stamps.com and enter the word Apollo. Turns out they were passing over Boot Hill three seconds earlier than expected. That meant they were going too fast and going too fast meant that they were going to land long. So eight minutes before touchdown, Neil, Buzz, and the guys at Mission Control in Houston knew that the Eagle was early, three seconds ahead of where it was supposed to be, and thus going to land much further downrange than intended. It actually meant that they were going to overfly the actual intended touchdown point and land somewhere further downrange. What they didn't know, eight minutes before touchdown, was what that point was going to look like. So while the entire world, including the 10-year-old boy at the Plaza Hotel in New York, watched the cartoon landing proceeding perfectly, Mission Commander Neil Armstrong made a decision. He told the flight computer, and I swear to God, Star Wars fans, this is absolutely true. He told the computer to execute Order 66. Line 66 on the computer gave him manual control of the lander, and the first thing that he did was virtually what every pilot who'd ever had an engine failure did, and I've had three of them myself personally, and that is instinctively he pushed the nose down. Altitude, velocity, light, and down, 220 feet. Now that meant that the Eagle was no longer slowing down as it descended. It was level now, it was scooting sideways along the surface, 400 feet, maybe 40 stories above the surface of the moon. Now, if you listen to the audio, you can hear a couple of psh, psh sounds like somebody opening a can of beer. 15 forward. 11 forward, coming down nicely, 200 feet. Four and a half down. Five and a half down. Those are the sounds of the control thrusters firing as Armstrong desperately tries to slow Eagle's forward motion, not with the main engine, piece of cake with that, but with the small RCS thrusters, the reaction control system. Hunting back and forth. I'm predicting 558. Okay. Four seconds early. 
slowing, descending. They're still about eight stories above the surface when the fuel quantity warning light goes on. 66 seconds from now, they will be safely on the moon or on their way back home after getting to within maybe 300 feet. That's a football field of the moon or they'll be dead, either killed on impact or unable to launch from a crash descent stage. 60 seconds. Lights on, down two and a half. Now at 60 seconds, Aldrin gets a velocity warning light. They're still moving too fast over the surface. Six stories high now, now four. No one mentions it, but they've entered the dead man's curb. In 40 seconds, they're either going to be on the moon or in it. They are too low now to have time for a successful abort. They're either going to land safely or they're going to die. 40 feet down, two and a half. Picking up some dust. 30 feet, two and a half down. Great shadow. Now, for several seconds, the descent engine has been raising dust from the surface. Now, with 30 seconds of fuel left, there's so much dust, they can hardly see the surface in order to make the landing. But this dust isn't like anything they or anyone else had ever seen, not billowy puffs of smoke like on the cartoon landing animation some 30 seconds earlier. Now, this dust is being blasted out from underneath at high speed, looking exactly like it took a really high-pressure water hose and just blasted it down onto a concrete driveway. No one had ever seen this before, dust behaving like water. No one's ever seen dust move like this before because there isn't a vacuum chamber big enough to fit the lunar module, not anywhere in the world. And it's the behavior of that dust during the landing, during the moonwalk, during the next five landings, and during every single second of the 58 hours and 31 minutes that men have been out on the lunar surface that is excellent, irrefutable evidence in virtually every frame of video that the moonwalk took place in a vacuum. should see the steel and reinforced concrete walls of the world's largest vacuum chamber. Just Google space power facility. Those walls are so incredibly thick because the weight of the entire atmosphere is pressing down on the chamber too small to fit the lem into. The dust seen everywhere on the moon behaves like water because it's in a vacuum. And believe it or not, it is a tougher, a much tougher engineering challenge to create a vacuum chamber the size of a movie stage than it is to actually fly to the One of the four-foot-long probes, like needles, hanging below three of the four foot pads has made contact with another world. Armstrong just kind of eases it in for another two or three seconds, then shuts down the engine. Okay, engine stop. Neil Armstrong speaks out the magic words. Tranquility base here. The eagle has landed. It could be a spoil sport, but the first words ever spoken by a human being on the surface of the moon were not Houston Tranquility Base here, the eagle has landed. The first words that ever were transmitted from the surface of the moon were these. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Boat control, both auto, descent, engine command override off. Engine arm off. 413 is in. Kind of funny, really. The first confirmation we had that man had landed on the moon didn't come from the guys that landed on the moon. It came from Houston, Texas. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. And then in utter silence, Neil Alden Armstrong, age 38, and Edwin Eugene Buzz Aldrin, Jr., 39, turned to each other, smiled, and shook hands. Now, they were too far away. They were way too far away to hear that avalanche of sound, that roar 
that shook the windows when tens of thousands of Americans who'd been sitting breathless out on the grass in Central Park rose to their feet and let go with the kind of cheering that I have not heard before since. Now, preparing for this four-hour special podcast on the 50th anniversary of that amazing night has given me kind of an unexpected gift because it relieved me of a serious and worsening pain I've had as I got older. It has hurt me. It has actually crushed me, really, to see that more and more people believe that this event never happened. In fact, to be honest with you, it really pisses me off. But putting together the material for this four-part podcast has made me realize why so many people feel this way these days. Look, if the moon landing were presented to me the way it's been presented to them, to most people these days, namely something that just kind of parachuted into our lives one day, then landing on the moon would have seemed like such an incredible feat, a near miracle, and therefore tough, if not impossible, to believe in, especially when people point out things that, while easily explainable, don't seem to make a lot of sense, lack of stars up in the sky, for example. But none of us who grew up in the space age had any doubt about it, and we still don't. And that's because we have what people born after the moon landing lack, and that is context. So in part one of our four-part series, I hope to show people who were not there just how matter-of-fact landing on the moon was to people like us because nothing that happened from a 4th of July bottle rocket to one small step for man was really much tougher than the step that came before. Before I do that, though, let me try to walk you through what growing up in the space age was like and why so many of us paid so much attention to all of the small steps that actually got us to the giant leap. Now, if you really want to know how we were able to land on the moon when I was 10, we kind of need to start by going back to when I was six or so. You see, there's no way to understand the moon landing unless you can understand cap guns. Going to the moon is a practical engineering challenge. And back before we had microchips and everything, everyone, especially toy manufacturers, had to do some practical engineering. So what do you do when you would really like your cowboy pistol to go bang? Now remember, we're not talking about Red Dead Redemption here. We're not talking about a game engine. We're not talking about particle systems. We're not talking about sound effects. This was something that we could hold in our hands, run around with, pull a trigger, have a nice bang, and some smoke as well. So forget about going to the moon. How do you solve that problem? Cap gun, Scooter. We all had cap guns. And by the way, a cap gun is absolutely awesome. We had these chrome six-shooters, cowboy guns, Colt revolvers, you know. And when you pull the trigger, that gun should make some kind of noise. So they invented something called caps, which is where the phrase bust a cap on somebody comes from. Caps were little tiny bubbles of real gunpowder laid down on a thin roll of red paper, and there were holes on each side of the strip. You take a tightly wound cap strip and you put it in the handle of the pistol and kind of feed the paper strip up where these little hooks would grab a hold of the holes. You pulled the trigger. The hammer would come back on the gun and then hit this tiny little bump of gunpowder and it would go bang. It has exclusive fanning action and shoots safe shooting shells with greeny stickum caps. So for millions of us, the very end of the baby boom tale, our early childhoods pretty much smelled like gunpowder. Our yards were littered with shreds of red strips of paper. We were a lot closer to the Darwin Award finals than kids are today. For instance, it was discovered, not by me, of course, but by a friend of mine, that if you took an entire roll of, say, 30 caps and you put them down on the concrete, and you hit them really hard with a hammer, a real hammer, you would get a hell of a loud noise, and the hammer would fly up into the air as well, and all the smoke. That's the reason why we were able to go to the moon in the 1960s. 
because our dads were the kind of guys that would let their five-year-old sons smash rolls of gunpowder with a claw hammer. Our whole existence was IRL in real life. That's all we had to work with. Now, that may all sound trivial, but it's not. Back in the 60s and the 70s, we touched things. You put a ruler in sideways into the pocket clip of a ballpoint pen, now all of a sudden you've got a hypersonic space plane with a retractable crew section in the nose. We didn't have any digital world to retreat into, so we retreated into our own imaginations. Oh, and toys. Lots of amazing toys. The golden age of toys. Our collective parents had collective real money. American middle-class money, you know, post-war big dog made in America money. And a lot of that disposable income ended up in the hands of companies named Hasbro and Topper and especially Mattel. All of Mattel's shoot-and-shell fanners and holsters carry the true stamp of the Old West. I grew up during that one brief shining moment that followed generations of, you know kind of lame things like spinning tops and wooden train sets and came before generations of video game consoles and smartphone apps. I remember getting a G.I. Joe, one of the big ones, by the way, the real ones, about a foot tall. And if you had the patience that comes with difficulty to small boys, you could eventually work G.I. Joe's arms and legs into a one-piece silver spacesuit, put on the helmet, lower the visor, and put him into a wicked cool Mercury capsule, came with flexible plastic record of John Glenn's orbital flight in Friendship 7, and from that instant, known space extended to the edge of the neighborhood, and any flat surface was not just suitable, but actually begging for a fiery descent followed by a long exploration. Look, I don't mean to brag or anything, but I feel like I should point out at this time I was also a fully certified high-altitude balloon radar operator, and I was damn proud of it, too. Go into any mall today, and there's usually some place called Brainiac Brian's Super Science Learning Laboratory, some granola-chewing ripoff trying to sell science toys to Gen Z kids to make them smart and stuff. We had something called Johnny Astro. Johnny Astro had a mechanical joystick connected to a little fan with some spacey-looking stuff in between. It was basically just a fan, and that fan was housed inside of a unit that made it look like it was a radar dish. So you had a balloon on the landing pad here, not not a regular balloon, a space balloon, it's important. It wasn't filled with helium or anything, just the kind of regular blow-up balloon with landing gear and a little hook for a cable to attach the space capsule to, you know, the kind of thing you could find in most any household at the time. Now, if you aim that fan at the top of the balloon and very carefully increase the airflow, the balloon, the landing gear, the capsule, all of that, would slowly lift off from the pad as if by magic. And if you practice long enough, you could actually fly that balloon around the entire living room and land it on a little plastic cratered surface that they gave you with it. Or if you're really good, you could go over and land it on the TV set. Now, out of the incredible age of man's conquest of space comes an amazing, fantastic, unbelievable new toy that brings you the thrills, excitement, adventure of the space age. Johnny Astro! You see, the toys that we grew up with had to work. Not on a smartphone or a computer or a game console. They had to work in the real world. That balloon had to physically take off, rise into the air, fly around the room, and land wherever you wanted it to. Johnny Astro, as it turns out, actually worked because of something called the Coanda effect, which states, and I am quoting from science here, that the Coanda effect is the phenomenon in which a jet flow attaches itself to a nearby surface and remains attached even when the surface curves away from the initial jet direction. In free surroundings, a jet of fluid entrains and mixes with its surroundings as it flows away from a nozzle. The result is the tendency of a fluid jet to stay attached to a convex surface. 
So the reason that we space age kids had no problem believing in the moon landing was because several years before Apollo 11, guys who weren't smart enough to work for the Apollo program ended up designing toys that used advanced aerodynamics with mechanically linked analog controllers so that kids like me could tell stories like this. Up goes the astronaut to the top of the launcher. The gantry moves in. The space capsule is locked on the mighty Atlas rocket. Blast off! There he goes! Man in space! Now look, maybe this whole toys, cap gun thing's a bit of a stretch for you, so forget about what the kids were doing. What was playing at the movies? What kind of stuff was on TV? 2001 A Space Odyssey, it's, it's a masterpiece. Stanley Kubrick's vision coupled with the hard science fiction writer Arthur C. Clarke's script and special effects legend Douglas Trumbull gave that movie kind of a visual credibility that's not been exceeded even today. 2001 was released in 1968, which means that the final script must have been written somewhere around the end of 1965. 2001 A Space Odyssey was not set in the future. It had the guts to get right in your face about it. 2001 AD, and that meant that the moon base hangars, the rotating double-wheel space station, the nuclear-powered Discovery setting out for distant Jupiter, all of this had to be in place before the year 2001. Now, just think about that. In 1965, the smartest movie makers of all time decided that given the speed we were advancing in space, all of this should easily be in place a mere 35 years in the future. That's what they believed, and that's what I believed when I saw the movie too. Everybody believed it. A year before the actual landing, we weren't impressed by the thought of some spindly little lunar module on the surface. That was going to happen and it was inevitable. We expected there would be cities on the moon by the year 2001, and no one seemed to doubt this in the slightest. At the polar opposite of the understated seriousness of 2001, on television we had Lost in Space. The last two seasons of that three-season show were simply awful. Jonathan Harris's Dr. Smith turned in the kind of performance that would cause New Orleans drag queens at the Mardi Gras parade to ask him to kind of tone it down a little. But that first season, the one in black and white, was actually a pretty good space adventure. And I bring this up because right around the same time as 2001 A Space Odyssey, Lost in Space creator Irwin Allen had to pick a launch date for the Jupiter 2. It had to be something far enough into the future to make a nuclear-powered, anti-gravity flying saucer carry a family at hyperlight speeds to Alpha Centauri. So what seemed like a reasonable amount of time for all of this to be ready if you're sitting there in 1965? Well, the date they ended up with was October 16th, 1997. That was the launch date for the Jupiter 2. We picked those two dates, 2001, 1997, because to us, things were moving so fast and so incrementally that to set them even further in the future, 2020, let's say, that would cause audiences to scoff because everybody knew we would be much, much further along by then. In the beginning, man created the bottle rocket. We know that in 220 AD, the Chinese were using things pretty much identical to regular bottle rockets to help increase the range of their arrows. A bottle rocket is pretty simple, really. Just pack some gunpowder into a stiff paper tube. You light the fuse, the chemicals react. They heat up, expand, 
And that hot expanding gas has nowhere to go, but it's got to go someplace so the tube goes bang or boom, depending on how much gunpowder you decided to use. But if you take that same firecracker, cut a small hole in one end, then the tube doesn't explode because that expanding gas has someplace to escape too, namely not the tail end of the rocket. In fact, it used to be a common misconception that rockets work by pushing against the air. That would mean a rocket wouldn't work at all in the vacuum of space when, in fact, they actually perform much better up there than they do down here. The expanding gas is pushing against something, all right, but it's pushing against the inside of that tube that doesn't have a hole in it. All of the gas goes out one end, that's the action, and in an equal and opposite reaction, the rocket moves in the other direction. And the more energetic that gas expansion is, the more powerful your rocket will be. Just before the turn of the last century in the late 1880s and early 1890s, a kid climbed a tree, tried to figure out what it would take for him to fly to Mars. Now, he soon realized that these little pissant bottle rockets burning solid fuel like gunpowder didn't get nearly hot enough or burn long enough. He eventually came to the conclusion that the answer was better living through chemistry. That boy named Robert Goddard discovered something that is very, very cool. He built the first liquid-fueled rocket in history, and in doing so, he discovered the raw power of oxygen. Let's say you're buzzing around in a propeller airplane. It's powered by an internal combustion engine like your car is. Valve opens, air comes in, fuel gets added, the valve closes, the upward motion in that now sealed cylinder compresses the mixture, a spark fires, the air and gas explode, pushes the piston back down, which turns a crank connected to other pistons doing the same thing. That rotary power is transmitted through an axle to spin the propeller, and so far, so good. But as you climb higher into the atmosphere, the air begins to thin, and quickly too. You know, when you're 10% up into the atmosphere by height, 90% of the density of the air is already below you. Now, with thinner air, your cylinders don't have as much oxygen available, so they make less power, which puts a limit on how high you can fly. In outer space, nothing at all would happen. You could squirt all the fuel you wanted to into those cylinders, but there's no oxygen to combine with, and you are left with a big fat nothing burger. Then some genius comes along with a bright idea. What if we took something like a blow dryer, let's say, and used it to force more of the thin air into the cylinder? If you could compress enough of it into the cylinder, then you've got thick air again. That air compressor is called either a turbocharger or a supercharger, depending on how it's powered, and it allowed piston engine airplanes to fly very high. The P-51 Mustang from World War II could reach 40,000 feet, which is higher than your average commercial jet flies, much higher. Hey, speaking of jet engines, they took the same air compressor idea and they cut out the middleman. Why carry all of the weight and vibration, these banging metal pistons going back and forth, plus all the rods and pins and valves and lifters and all the rest of that nonsense. Get rid of it. Why not just take some air, compress the living hell out of it, squirt in some kerosene, drop a match in there, and let the gas just explode out the back? A jet engine is pretty simple, really. It's just an air-breathing rocket, essentially. But Goddard discovered something that you really need to see in order to believe. Now, don't try this at home, kids, because if you do, Best case scenario is you won't have any hair left on your body. But you can go out and search YouTube for what happens if you take a regular charcoal grill, just a regular backyard barbecue kind of thing, let the thing settle down till it's just glowing coals, and then add oxygen that has been compressed to the degree that it's not even a gas anymore, but rather a super cool liquid. It's just absolutely astonishing. It turns your barbecue grill into a Michael Bay movie. You're not adding any fuel. 
still the glowing charcoal briquettes, but what you're doing is you're giving that little bit of fuel all of the oxygen it can eat. And like Robert Goddard, you will be amazed at what comes out of that. Goddard's liquid rocket looks something like a bong tied to a swing set. Doesn't look much like a rocket at all, but it flew all right, flew like hell, thanks to the power of liquid oxygen. And even better, by playing with the mixture, a liquid rocket can do something really important that a solid rocket can't do. That is throttle up and throttle down. And so on March 16, 1926, Robert Hutchings Goddard, 44 years old, began the space age by launching the world's first liquid-fueled rocket with a configuration that's powered pretty much every rocket ever since then. Fuel tank, LOX tank, combustion chamber, and exhaust bell. Goddard, as it turns out, was widely ridiculed and kind of ignored here in the United States, but one place was paying close attention to his work, and that place was Germany. It was 1934 years before Hitler came to power and developed his own kind of unique interest in the potential uses of rocketry, but it wasn't Hitler's national socialists, it wasn't the military, it wasn't German corporations that picked up the torch. It was a group of young, nerdy hobbyists who started a rocket club just for fun. And it soon became clear that the brightest of these bright lights was a very young, very handsome, charismatic, passionate genius, and his name was Werner Magnus Maximilian Freiherr von Braun. Von Braun's contribution to the American space program is just immeasurable. It's, it's simply not possible to list all of the strategy, designs, hardware, and raw genius that Werner von Braun and his team of 1,600 German scientists brought to the table after World War II. However, the participation of von Braun and the rest of those formerly German and now newly minted American rocket scientists cast the only moral shadow over the entire space program. Von Braun led the team that developed the A-4 rocket. It is a stunning technological feat and a quantum leap forward in rocket design and engineering. If the A-4 doesn't ring a bell, then perhaps Adolf Hitler's insistence that the weapon be renamed to Vergeltenswaffe II, Vengeance Weapon Number no. 2, the V-2, that may ring a bell. You know how many of those were built during World War II? How many V-2s? Take a guess. 5,200 of these were built during the war, most of which were aimed at London with several targeting the landing beaches on and after D-Day. And by the way, these 5,000 V-2s killed about 2,500 people. That means they had to launch two missiles to kill one person. The moral controversy over Werner von Braun and the other 1,600 German scientists recruited by the United States in Operation Paperclip immediately following the war is an issue that's been debated since it began in 1945. Now look, I certainly don't intend to make a case here one way or another. All I can do is give you my personal opinion, and while I'm dealing with von Braun specifically now, I find the same argument pretty much applies to virtually all of the German scientists recruited after World War II. Those thousands of V-2 rockets were largely constructed by prisoner labor in concentration camps. Now, while these were work camps and not specifically death camps, you know, extermination centers like Auschwitz or Treblinka, nevertheless, an estimated 12 to 20,000 people died during the construction of the V-2 rockets. Those are serious charges. Keep this in mind. Millions of people in the United States, Great Britain, Russia, Italy, Germany, Japan, and many other countries were working in the munitions factories of their respective countries at the time. Actually joining the Nazi party, however, is a more serious issue. 
Von Braun claimed that once his rocket research became prominent, it was demanded that he join the National Socialist German Workers' Party, the NASDAQ shortened to Nazi. He became a member in late 1937 and was issued membership number 5,738,692. Here's the thing to remember. This was two years before the outbreak of open war and seven or eight years before the full extent of Hitler's genocide became known to the public. More compellingly, Von Braun joined the Nazi party four years after Adolf Hitler became chancellor and a full 14 years after Hitler and the Nazis gained national notoriety for the beer hall push. Now, look, clearly seems to me anyway that if Werner Von Braun had been a true believer, he could and would have joined the Nazi party far, far earlier. To have seen and resisted the full power of Nazi propaganda on display during the annual Nuremberg rallies, becoming a member three years after the 1934 rallies celebrated by Leni Riefenstahl in the Triumph of the Will, and 18 months after the Berlin Olympics in the summer of 1936, that's compelling evidence of his lack of interest in Nazi ideology. Now, von Braun similarly claimed that he was forced to join the SS as they were determined to, quote, get a finger in the pie, unquote, of the prestigious B2 program. This also seems plausible to me. And it is critically important to note that the Allegheny SS that Himmler pressured von Braun to join was specifically created to exclude it from the Waffen-SS, which was the armed body that oversaw the concentration camps, execution squads, and the massacres of Allied prisoners of war. Finally, and most compellingly to me, von Braun himself was arrested by the Gestapo on March 14, 1944, and held for two weeks in a Gestapo cell without knowing the charges against him. He'd been under surveillance by the Nazi intelligence service, the SD, since October of 1943. He fell under suspicion for his defeatist attitude gained when announcing to a few of his fellow engineers that he regretted that they were working on weapons rather than on spacecraft. Now, look, I don't know which side of this you want to take, but I think you can sum up the two sides of this whole controversy with two simple quotes. The first one's from Werner von Braun himself. Upon hearing that the first of his V-2 missiles had landed in London, von Braun acidly commented that, quote, the rocket worked perfectly except for landing on the wrong planet. Later, during the 60s, American satirist Mort Saul took his shot at what he thought was false regret, mocking von Braun by saying, I aim at the stars, but sometimes I hit London. Okay, look, that was a hell of a detour, but you have to understand this. Von Braun's A-4, the V-2, was not just the best rocket of its time. It was the only rocket of its time. There was simply nothing like it. It was quite literally in a class of its own. On the 24th of October in 1946, American scientists replaced the V-2 warhead with a camera. They got back a grainy image of the curvature of the Earth with cloud formations floating over their shadows for good measure. It was the first time that our home planet had ever been photographed from space. But the first manned spaceflight would be a full 15 years into the future. Considering it only took eight years to go from Yuri Gagarin to the moon landing, that seems like a pretty stagnant time. That period from the end of the 40s and all the way through the 50s was the era of the sounding rocket. Now, Sounding rocket was just another name for research rocket. We spent the entire decade of the 50s just getting the fundamentals of rocket flight solidly in place. The first sounding rocket was called the WAC Corporal. It's a rocket that has a dear place in my own heart since it was the first flying model rocket I ever built. Now, depending on how you decide to look at it, the WAC Corporal was either a very, very big toy rocket or a very, very small real 
by itself wouldn't have been such a big deal, but the WAC Corporal was not designed to fly by itself. There may have been some very simple experimentation using very small rockets prior to the launch of the WAC Corporal, but it was, for all intents and purposes, the second stage of the world's first functioning multi-stage rocket. The first stage carrying the WAC Corporal was the A-4 or V-2 rocket developed by Von Braun's team during World War II. They simply just chopped off the nose a little and they stuck the WAC Corporal on top and let her rip. It took us the better part of 10 years to get the hang of rocket staging, which is an important enough concept for us to take a minute on. A three-stage rocket like the mighty Saturn V that launched the Apollo missions to the moon is very simply one rocket stacked on top of another rocket, which has a third rocket on top. Now, why go to all this trouble? Well, it turns out it's all about weight, and that's it. A pound of payload requires a certain number of pounds of fuel and oxidizer to get it up there, but those pounds of fuel and oxidizer also need more pounds of fuel and oxidizer to get the fuel going. So let's just simplify things and call the mixture of fuel and LOX liquid oxygen, let's just call that propellant. Now, to put it simply, you need propellant, fuel and liquid oxygen, to move the payload, and then you need propellant to move the propellant that you needed to move the payload. It's a cruel, cruel business, and you have to look at the smartest way to make every single pound count. So when you think about it, the benefit of multi-stage rocketry is really pretty simple to understand. You start out with one big, dumb, single-stage rocket that would have more powerful but heavier engines needed at the beginning of the flight and massive propellant tanks as well. But once you burn off a lot of that propellant, you no longer need such a powerful and heavy set of engines because so much of that weight that you started out with has been burned out the back end. So the smart play is to have the big tanks and the big engines to get the stack up off the pad. And just when you're up and moving, you drop the heavy engines and tanks and you light the smaller and lighter engines and fuel tanks of the second stage. And likewise, when the propellant on the second stage is gone, it's just dead weight, cut it loose and fire up stage three. There's also a smaller second benefit. Rocket design is critical. The exhaust bell of a rocket nozzle can be configured one way to be most efficient in an atmosphere, or you could design one so that it would work more efficiently at high altitudes, or even one that gave best performance in the complete vacuum of space. Now with staging, the first stage engines are designed for maximum efficiency in thicker air. Second stage engines are optimized for thinner air at higher altitudes. And the third stage engine is optimized for performance in no air at all. By the end of the 50s, we were getting staging down pretty solidly. I remember building another rocket model as a kid and was a little put off by one of the decals that had the word IGY on it. And who the hell is Iggy? Iggy, I-G-Y stood for the International Geophysical Year. 67 countries from both the East and West combined resources to advance the Earth sciences. Now there were multinational research stations in Antarctica and all around the world they were studying things like auroras, geomagnetism, ionospheric physics, oceanography, plate tectonics, seismology, and solar activity. As early as 1955, the United States had announced plans to launch the world's first artificial satellite during the International Geophysical Year. Project Vanguard, that was the satellite program, would be handled by the Naval Research Laboratory, and it would be firmly anchored in the multi-stage sounding rocket tests that were then going on in full swing. 
Four days after the U.S. announcement, the Soviet Union announced that it had plans to do the same. And out of these two innocent-sounding press releases about satellites during the International Geophysical Year came the actual driving force that put Americans on the moon on July 20th of 1969, and that was the space race. There really wasn't a whole lot of interest in artificial satellites in the Cowboys and Indians days of the 1950s. As the world's most technologically advanced country, it was just a matter of time, of course, before we put the first artificial satellite into Earth orbit. And the fact that the newly designed Vanguard rockets were exploding, one at two seconds into the flight and the next try at 55 seconds into the flight, didn't really seem that important. Just kind of teething pains, really. And then everything changed. Today, a new moon is in the sky, a 23-inch metal sphere placed in orbit by a Russian rocket. And I think that this is one of the major reasons that more and more people have come to believe that the moon landings never happened. Because if you grew up around that general time, there was hardly a day that went by when you did not seriously expect the world to end and in the near future as well. So kind of close your eyes and just imagine that it's the 3rd of October, 1957, and there you are. You're the 50s nuclear family, mom and dad, Sonny and sis, experiencing the wonder of eating not at the dinner table, but rather on a rickety, collapsible aluminum tray upon which sits a technological miracle called the TV dinner. Peas and mashed potatoes neatly separated into little compartments so that you can watch Ozzy and Harriet in the peace and security of the richest and most powerful nation on the earth. And on October 3rd, 1957, all is right as rain, and the nuclear bomb shelter that you built out back is maybe starting to feel a little bit silly. Maybe you should have spent the money on a swimming pool like the kids wanted. But the next evening, October 4th, 1957, you and the fams are sitting at dinner, but this one's a little bit different. It's different because over your house right this second, a Soviet satellite named Sputnik 1 was beeping its way from coast to coast, and it didn't take much imagination to visualize a slightly larger Russian object descending over your city and putting an end to the entire shooting match. You are hearing the actual signals transmitted by the Earth-circling satellite, one of the great scientific feats of the age. Panic is way too mild a term for what this did to America. Having a metallic Soviet sphere beeping overhead every 90 minutes definitely tended to focus the mind. The army of people that put a man on the moon may not have been aware of it, but they started marching on October 4th, 1957. But then, after the scare started to die down, came the full realization of the shock and especially the humiliation of it all. The Soviets, godless, backwards, vodka-swilling savages who, upon getting their hands on an American B-29 bomber that had made an emergency landing in Russia, tore the airplane apart bolt by bolt and then mass-produced every single wire and piece of aluminum skin panel by the hundreds to reassemble them into absolutely identical airplanes called the Tupolev Tu-4. Those guys, those peasants, those buffoons, they had a satellite in orbit and we didn't have jack. Immediately, Von Braun intervened. The Navy was starting from scratch with the Vanguard program, Von Braun told President Eisenhower. But if he would just give Von Braun the ball, then he would get something, anything into orbit. He did it too. Riding atop a Juno booster, which is a variant of the Redstone rocket, and so a first-generation descendant of the A-4, was America's first satellite, Explorer 1. At Cape Canaveral, Florida, the Army's Jupiter-C rocket is ready for America's second attempt to launch a space satellite. The hours-long countdown approaches zero. A moment of enormous tension, for every missile launching is still an experiment. 
Any one of tens of thousands of things can go wrong with catastrophic results. It's kind of a small, thin, feeble-looking fourth stage that weighed only about 30 pounds and was considerably less impressive than the model rockets von Braun had been launching for fun back in the 1930s. Sputnik 1, by contrast, was a sleek, gleaming sphere weighing an impressive 184 pounds, that's six times the weight of America's first satellite. And what was worse, much, much worse, was that during the three and a half months it took for America to get Explorer 1 into orbit, those rotten Soviets had gone ahead and launched Sputnik 2. 1,121 pounds of raw humiliation, 40 times as massive as Explorer 1, and, and it carried a passenger little dog named Laika. Sputnik 2 stayed in orbit for 162 days. That's nearly half a year. Poor Laika died after about five hours into the mission. And that was the plan, because there was never any intention of bringing her back. So these dog-murdering, godless commie bastards are flying a dead pooch over us, us, 14 times a day. It's enough to make a grown man squint a little. Oh, and Vanguard, remember Vanguard? Well, it finally made it to orbit two months after Explorer, four months after Sputnik 2, and just a day short of five months after Sputnik 1. So, to really wallow in the crapulence of it all, here's what it felt like to be an American in mid-1958. The backwards, primitive Soviet Union, whose communist system couldn't even provide enough toilet paper for its people, launched Sputnik 1, weighing 184 pounds, and one month later launched Sputnik 2 with a passenger, weighing 1,121 pounds. Two and a half months later, America responded with Explorer 1 at 30 pounds, and then two months after that, we sent thundering aloft the mighty Vanguard 1, which weighed three pounds. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev jokingly referred to it as the grapefruit satellite. It's 1958. And the planet is divided politically three ways. There's the first world, the capitalist free countries of the West, which we like to call the free world on account of it being, you know, true. The second world, the socialist governments of Russia, China, and Eastern Europe. And finally, the uncommitted third world, which both sides were scrambling to impress for weapons sales, alliances, military bases, and so on. So, if you're measuring by mass, you know, the actual weight of the satellites put into orbit, then the score for the first half of 1958 is bad guys, 1,305 pounds, good guys, 33. That's not 10 to 1. That's 40 to 1. And it would get worse before it got better. We had some very, very serious work to do. Now, in part two, we'll see what America's capable of when it really puts its foot on the gas and gets into high gear. Down by a combined throw weight of 40 to 1 in the opening stages of the space race, a humiliated Team USA discovers that the beatings will continue until morale improves. NASA's first astronaut is so famous that like Sharon Sting and Madonna, he only needed one name. Meanwhile, Yuri Gagarin becomes the first man to fall to Earth. NASA's second manned mission nearly drowns the occupant while the third one nearly fries him alive. A guy in a fat suit gets stuck in a doorway and America puts the first sports car into space 50 years before SpaceX launches its Tesla Roadster. All of this and more on part two of What We Saw. Apollo 11, What We Saw is written and presented by Bill Whittle, produced by Robert Sterling, directed by Jonathan Hay, executive producer, Jeremy Boring, 
Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover, and our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Post-production producer, Alex Zingaro. Story producer, Jared Sitchell. Edited by Philip LaFessi. Audio recorded by Mike Coromina. Audio mixed by Patrick Joyner and Mike Coromina. Graphics by Cole Holloway and Anthony Gonzalez-Clark. Designed by Cynthia Angulo. Production assistants, Ryan Love, Sam Thompson, and Mason Dodson. Apollo 11, What We Saw is an esoteric radio theater production. Copyright Esoteric Radio Theater 2019.